This week's episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com fool and enter promo code fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Well, hello, Allison. Well, hello there. This week, we're bringing in a foolish expert to explain the ins and outs of socially responsible investing. I think that's what we're calling it this week. Or maybe even more. What factors should you consider and why it could boost your portfolio returns? We'll also answer your question about when you should use your Roth to pay for the kiddos' college. Is that where we were going with that question? Whether or not you should do that, but it has some merits. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, and today's question comes from Luke. He writes, Hello, I'm 27 years old, making approximately 90000 with four kids. Insert special hugs reference here. Luke also has a mortgage and gives a fair amount to charity. I'm contributing 6% to my Roth 401k to get the full match, and I have another 4% of my income slotted for long-term financial plays, which I'm thinking of contributing to a Roth IRA. My main reason for doing this is that I can use the contributions for higher ed expenses for those kiddos, and thought it is easier than having four 529 accounts. Is this true, or am I missing a benefit of the 529? Well, Luke, here's what I like about what you are doing. You are smart to be contributing to a Roth, right? When you contribute to the Roth, you don't get a tax break today in exchange for having tax-free income in retirement. Generally, the Roth is better for people in a lower tax bracket. For a married guy with four kids making $90,000, he is definitely in the 15% tax bracket, maybe even lower depending on his mortgage interest deduction and his contributions to charity. Definitely makes sense to do the Roth. Now, in your 20s, you should be saving about at least 10% of your income, maybe 15% for retirement. He's not quite doing that. We don't know the match he's getting from his employer, but it's probably not quite up to that. So it's better to be using his extra money to put in the Roth. Because really, as a parent, you should focus on your own retirement first. Then, once it comes time for college later on, if you have the extra money, you actually can use your Roth to pay for college. Because, as Luke obviously understands you can take out the contributions from your Roth IRA, not 401k, your Roth IRA, tax and penalty-free at any time. Plus, you can take out the earnings from the Roth, or actually any money from a traditional IRA, for qualified higher education expenses. You'd still owe taxes, but you would be exempt from that 10% penalty that you would have to pay if you take money out early before 59 and a half. So that's also a good backup option. Another reason why people like the Roth is because you can invest your Roth in anything, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, whereas a regular 529 account is generally a selection of mutual funds. Plus, finally, uh, money that is in your retirement accounts doesn't count towards financial aid eligibility. So that's appealing. Now, why would you do a 529 account? Well, first of all, the Roth IRA does have an income eligibility limit. Luke isn't there yet, but for some people, they might be there, whereas with the 529, just about anyone can contribute to it. Also, 529s have much higher contribution limits. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars, whereas with the Roth IRA, it's $5,500 right, it's, not gonna, it's probably not going to get you there. Right. It's still, Paying for college. Right, exactly. The 529 does have the benefit of also being tax-free if it's used for qualified higher education expenses. Plus, many states offer benefits to the people, to their own citizens. So, for example, I'm in Virginia, I contribute to Virginia's 529, I get a deduction on my state income tax return. Now, when it comes to financial aid, the 529 does count a little bit against that, but here's the difference. When I when you take money out of the Roth IRA, even though the assets don't, the money that you take out 
can affect your, your financial aid eligibility the following year, whereas the 529 isn't quite as bad. So, you have to weigh those benefits. Generally speaking, what I think is best is if you can only save for one, save for your own retirement, knowing that you can use some of that retirement money for college later if you have to. But it's better to save for both and to save for them separately when you have the money to do so. All right, Luke, just do it all. Just do it all. Whenever you can. That's right, with all those kids. Thanks to Casper for sponsoring today's episode. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to the consumer. Casper is made of supportive memory foam for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. And for all our special listeners out there, you can save an additional $50 towards a mattress purchase by going to casper.com fool and entering the promo code fool. That's casper.com fool, promo code fool. Terms and conditions apply. Do the right thing, do the right thing Do it all the time, do it all the time We have a special guest today! It's Alice Lovax. So, followers of The Fool will know Alex. She's been an analyst for a few years now with The Motley Fool. How many years? 13? Couple. Uh, And we brought her in here to talk about socially responsible investing. At least this this is how the conversation went. I don't know if this is exactly how it went, but in my mind, recalling it, I was like, hey, Alice, can you come in and talk about SRI investing? Which either stands for socially responsible investing or maybe sustainable, responsible, and impact investing. And then you were like, Alice was like, oh, do you mean ESG investing? <laughs> and then there's CSR investing, and we're all trying to avoid MSG, and bro is down with OPP. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I was me. like, ah! There's just too many acronyms here. Yes. So, Maybe you can explain what it is that I brought you in to talk about today. <laughs> Absolutely. There are it is kind of an alphabet soup of different acronyms at this point. Socially responsible investing is probably what most people are most aware of. Traditionally, that involves screening out certain industries that people tend to consider as vice industries. Oh, so I'm not going to invest in tobacco stocks or something like that. Exactly. That is the traditional view of this. But as I've been following it for more than a decade, the whole industry has been evolving. So there's a little bit more than more beyond that exclusionary type of a view. And there's something that's been emerging more and more called ESG investing, which stands for environmental, social, and governance investing. And what that means is you're integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into your investment analysis. And um, the great news is that this, I feel like the universe of companies that you can look at that are actually strong in these areas has been growing. So it's a much more sort of a positive approach a way to look for companies that have an edge over other companies because they're doing such a great job in these areas, or to avoid companies that are opening themselves to more risk because they're not so good in these areas. So you say you've been looking into this for about a decade or so. How did you get started? All right. The way that I started was um, I have always believed that capitalism is a great force in you know making things better for humanity. but. I had to acknowledge the downside that sometimes capitalism's more short-term profit-seeking has caused major problems. I don't like the idea of companies that basically, you know, they go for profits and then if there are social or environmental costs, those get pushed on to other people. So this felt like a way 
to celebrate capitalism and investing, but also to have that that responsibility and accountability for what you know how you're making your money. So you said um, you said the the big letters now that we're going to focus on are ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance. Yes. So let's break them down each one, and let's start with environmental. What are you looking at when you are researching companies and you want to look at the, the E, the environmental aspect of their business? The environmental aspect. Um, what I'm looking for is, you know, obviously writ large, this is about environmental sustainability. And the type of things I look for is to see if they have detailed sustainability reports with a whole lot of transparency about what they're doing about greenhouse gas emissions, whether they have sustainable products, um, products that are being designed with sustainability in mind, whether they have robust goals in environmental initiatives, and being honest about whether they're meeting those goals or not. So when you're looking at that, how common is that? I mean, if you're looking at a span of... I'll make up a number, a thousand companies, how many of them would have that much detailed information about their environmental issues? Well, that's one of the things that's been very interesting and exciting about the last several years is the amount of information and the quality of the information is getting a lot better. 80% of S&P 500 companies now have um, sustainability reports, wow. and that's up. That's from, great. Yeah, yeah. It used to be only about 30% several years ago. So they are, you know, they're coming forward with it. A lot of the smaller companies, it's harder to tell. So mm-hmm. you're going to get more piecemeal disclosure. Another thing I like to see is best in class is when the sustainability reports use some of the standards that are out there. One of them is global reporting initiative. One is principles for responsible investment. So if you see that on a sustainability report, you know that they are actually looking at a standard set of criteria. And it's amazing. There's great information for investors within all of that disclosure. The downside is, is this is not a disclosure that's mandated yet. So it is a little bit, you know, like I said, bigger companies, you're going to have a better chance of finding great information than smaller companies. It seems like there's a great opportunity here for businesses to be like, oh, we recycle. Job, good job well done. Exactly. We're, we're a green company. And that's exactly, you know, I want to steer clear of like, yeah, it's much more than just we recycle. It's way more than just we give philanthropic donations. Um, I would never say that such stuff is bad, but I do like to see, for example, with philanthropy, I like to see that it's sort of integrated into the business, has something to do with their actual business. I like to see all of these elements integrated into the actual business, not just an add-on on the side. Right. All right, let's move on and talk about the S of ESG, which is social. Yeah, the S side, that is actually going to deal a lot with employee treatment and happiness, sort of cultural aspects we talk about a lot at The Fool. It's also going to have to do with suppliers, like how suppliers are treated. Diversity, um, employee diversity fits into that, into that wheelhouse as well as human rights. And I would also include how customers are treated. We all know some companies, even though of course you want to make your customers happy, some companies are kind of terrible to their customers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And is this also going to be in like annual reports or where where do you find your research for this? Like I said, with those um very high level disclosures from GRI and PRI, you will find a lot of that kind of an information. However, uh, you know, in other ways it can be harder to find 
Um, I like to look at some of the best places to work type of... Like Glassdoor. Exactly. Glassdoor is another great place to work. Another thing that's interesting about our sort of evolving marketplace is with social media. It's just a lot harder for companies to hide from some of the things they do, so you can get information that way as well. And how much does like like a, a New York Times article or something like that impact your investing thesis? Like what... A couple of years ago, was it the New York Times wrote that huge piece about Amazon yes. and how horrible yeah. Amazon is to work for? When you when you see that, how does does that play into this as well, or do you think, well, that's just one article and you move on? I absolutely pay attention to things like um, a well-respected news sources article about a company, and that kind of an article about an aggressive cu- culture is something that I think most SRI or ESG investors would either say I can't invest in that company or I am heightening my sort of risk profile for them. This makes them a bit riskier. All right, and the final letter is G, which stands for Corporate Governance. Yes, that would be the um, the rules and the processes by which a company is controlled. That's where you're kind of looking at the board of directors and the management and you're trying to assess how they are on shareholder friendliness, and increasingly how they treat stakeholders. Um, One thing, just to back up a little bit, when I talk about SRI or ESG or impact investing or sustainability, one of the common commonalities there, I think, is just paying attention to stakeholders when you're thinking about your investments and how how they are treated. Um, At any rate, back to corporate governance, I think one of the areas that generally gets the most attention from many individual investors and just people in the general public is the CEO pay piece. Yeah, compensation, yeah. Compensation. That is a big part of what we look for. And, you know, whether there's accountability from management and if the board's holding management accountable, there are increasingly areas like board diverse, diversity, whether there is a good cognitive diversity on that board of directors to help, you know, manage the company better come up with all those different types of ideas. When I think of corporate governance, I don't think of a lot of things, but I do (laughs) think of Nell Minow, and people who listen to Motley Fool Money will recognize that name because she's been on Motley Fool Money more than any other guest that Chris has had on. And she's She's an expert in corporate. She's also like a movie reviewer. Yes. Yes. But she's also an expert in corporate governance and a firecracker activist. Like (laughs) She's... To know her is to just love her and fear her at the same time, which is fantastic. <laughs> and so, and she, so she's 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 very involved in corporate governance. And didn't she once kick her dad off of a corporate board? Yes, as part of her activism. Yes. Was it called activism? Do I call it activism? I okay. think so. Yes, that is one of the best stories that she has told is her dad, Newton Minow, was on the board of directors of a company. And And he's a big deal. I mean, former head of the FCC. Yep. The SS Minow on Gilligan's Island was named after (laughs) him. Yes, he is a big deal. But as it turns out, Nell Minow and other um, corporate governance experts, you know, they they would like to see directors attending 75% or more of meetings every year. And it turned out that her dad hadn't been at a company that he was on the board. So she apparently called him up and said, Dad, I'm sorry to say this, but you know we have to encourage that you be taken off this board due to not making that level of attendance. And apparently he said, 
but I was close. And she said, but dad, when I was a kid and I, I missed curfew, I, you never were okay when I said I was close. <laughs> so. When I think of governance, I think, of course, of government. And one of the recent developments over the past several years or so is the whole Citizens United decision, which I would think would make some companies more active in government and using some of their resources to influence government. Is that an issue? Is that something people are looking at? Yes. Actually, um, do you mean like corporate lobbying? Yes. If you look into the part of this area called shareholder activism, again, we talked about there's so many different ways to do this kind of investing. Um, One of those ways is to actually engage with companies on issues, you know, by by publishing a shareholder proposal so all shareholders can vote on it. And I know that that in recent years, uh, lobbying disclosures have been a big thing that shareholders have wanted to see. They want transparency about that, or they don't even want lobbying, which is, you know, understandable. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So where is the proof that investing with a bent to environmental, social, corporate governance impact Where's the proof that it works yes. and that it helps the investor sleep better at night? Here's the punchline. Here's why you want to care about it. <laughs> exactly. For many, many years, the conventional wisdom was that you were always going to lose money by investing this way. But as it turns out, over the years, we have seen a lot more data that supports the idea that you can do as well or better than traditional investing by investing this way. For example, um, just a few examples I pulled. According to a meta-study that was put out in 2014 by the University of of Oxford and Arabesque Partners, 88% of the research showed solid ESG practices resulted in better operational performance at the companies, and 80% of the studies showed stock performance positively influenced by good sustainability practices. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there are a lot of... um, Different studies that show things like improved ROA, ROE. Um, return on equity, return on assets. Thank you. You're yes. welcome. <laughs> More acronyms. Yeah. Sorry about yeah, that. <laughs> um, and less volatility. Um, I think there is a sense that taking this kind of a sort of wider, stakeholder-centric, holistic approach can it, you know, decrease volatility? It just shows a good management team that's able to think that way. I hear the millennials love this. Oh, the millennials do love this. <laughs> that's another reason that this is seen as kind of like a hotter and hotter area. Right. It's, yeah, young people um, really want to invest this way. They want to work at companies that are socially responsible. Therefore, if you're a socially responsible company, the millennials are, you know, the, the talent wants to come. Yeah, the idea of, of investing alongside your values yes. is, I think, what they... Yeah, those yes. millennials. I know. Believe in stuff. It's so sweet. <laughs> it is really sweet and nice. I love them. <laughs> Another um, study that might be interesting to folks is Morgan Stanley in 2015. They did a study on 10,000 or more um, open-end mutual funds and nearly 3,000 SMAs. Over a seven-year time frame, they showed that socially responsible ones met and often exceeded the performance of the traditional counterparts. They also found that the MSCI KLD Social Index outperformed the S&P 500 by 45 basis points since 1990. So that's a long time frame right there that they looked at, and it did show very good results. It beat the market. Yes, absolutely. There you go. All right. Let's let's talk turkey. Oh, gosh. Who says that anymore? (laughs) (laughs) 
Let's talk about some companies that you would consider rank high in evaluating them for environmental, social, corporate governments. Is there one? Is there one or two that you really like that you want to yes. share with our listeners? There sure are. Um, one of my favorites is the Netherlands company Unilever. Which oh. Mm-hmm. They make everything. <laughs> they make everything. Exactly. They are in your house. Most definitely. <laughs> right now. Um, the call is right coming from inside the house. house. Yeah. <laughs> but they're really nice. Yeah. Hello. It's Unilever. <laughs> that's awesome. I don't, I don't think that's actually a Netherlands accent. <laughs> but nobody knows know. the difference. No, so whatever. It sounded good to me. <laughs> Unilever is interesting because, you know, it, it is a massive, massive multinational corporation. But um, in 2010, the CEO, Paul Pullman, decided to actually shift the company's strategy into sustainability. And, you know, that meant just completely trashing the whole idea of sort of an added on corporate social responsibility extra initiative, but actually integrating it into the business. So they have called that the sustainable living plan. And the basic upshot is they wanted to disconnect their growth from negative environmental impact while increasing positive social impact and to realize the benefits of related cost savings as well as the innovations that they were going to do to do this. They've made a whole bunch of robust sustainability goals. I imagine this has to come from the top, right? Like yes. the decision that we are going to be the kind of company that cares Absolutely. has to come from the top. Yeah, having it come from the top is a huge big deal. And some of the things that they've recently um, achieved include like 60% of their agricultural raw materials are sourced sustainably. Using water, waste, and energy efficiencies, they've avoided more than 600 million euros in costs since 2008. Oh. Which, you know, just goes, I love to, that's another thing I love to see is companies that are saying, you know, this is the money we've saved, these are the products that are sustainable, that are growing, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. They are have been very forward-looking on areas like gender diversity. 46% of their managers are now women, and that's up from 38% in 2010. So they hmm. are making progress in that area. Um, They recently said in a conference call that 91% of their employees have responded to surveys saying that they feel proud to work there, Um, which, you know, having a jazzed workforce is actually a a pretty big benefit. Interesting things about Paul Pullman in sort of the CEO pay realm. He actually froze his pay when he started there um, during the recession, and he has said he was embarrassed by what he was paid, so he is... He's one of those people who's like, you know what, it's kind of egregious how me and my peers are paid so much. He's said things like, I would still do a good job, you know, regardless. Right, if I, I made wanted... a million less than what I'm making, I would still. <laughs> yeah, like he wants to do the job. He wants to do a good job. He's a huge um, proponent of, you know, sustainable business. And then, as it turns out, I just saw today that he did take a 20% pay cut last year, but I'm feeling like he's probably like, I'm good with that because I want to do what I do and I want to try to just, you know, more forward motion in businesses that are sustainable. And how is Unilever stock done? Over the long haul, it's done well. It had a little bit more of a difficult year last year, but the world economy had a lot of you know, things going on last year, stuff in Brazil. There was a demonetization in India at the end of last year that was. Yeah, um, that's right. That was crazy. Crazy. Yeah. yeah, very bizarre. So, you know, I actually own shares of Unilever, and, you know, I look at a sort of a slower year or whatever, and I'm like, you know what? 
I'm good with it. You're holding the stock for I'm a long holding. time. I want to be there. And another thing, um, you all probably heard that Kraft Heinz made a bid. And I saw that 10% pop, and I was like, you know what? I don't want them to buy Unilever. Right, I, right. I bought this company for the long haul, and yeah. I like what it's doing, and please stay away. Yeah, especially <laughs> those folks. Yeah, especially. The, yeah, the, the, very different cultures, yeah, shall we not, say. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how much ESG aspects are no, important to the, those I, folks. Okay. I do not think so. So anyway, that's one of my favorites. So we, you talked about individual stocks. You can obviously invest in individual companies for um, their ESG aspects. I still don't know exactly how the link, how to work this lingo. Whether I that's a verb ES or genus. an ad, yeah, ES genus. It's, it's ES genus. Uh, <laughs> But there, but you mentioned ETF. You mentioned mutual funds, index funds. Is do you have any um, recommendations for someone who just wants to get a, a basket of ESGness? <laughs> a basket of ESGness. You know, it's funny. Over the many, many years that I've been involved, like personally, I feel like I understand why people might want to do it passively, but. Due to the fact that this can be such a subjective area, and qualitative and, and qualitative. Yeah. I kind of have a bias to doing it actively hmm. because then you can actually make the decisions of which stocks you feel great about. For example, from the ESG integration outlook, you can look at a company like Lockheed Martin and it actually scores very, very high in ESG. Hmm. It is um, great at sustainability, and a company like that can absolutely, you know, move the needle in sustainability. And you know, when you think about it, like if climate change is a global security risk, suddenly you realize why a company like Lockheed Martin would be involved. However, from the typical socially responsible investors' outlook. A company that has a Hellfire missile is probably not <laughs> what, what they're looking for. That's where I come down. At least on until it they too. get the Heavenfire missile. Yeah, yeah. But that just is an example of there's there are many ways to look at this, and different types of investors are going to have different opinions yeah. on yeah. you know. But that said, there are plenty of um, solid ones out there. Solid like mutual funds like. Paxworld and Domini and Calvert are all very, you know, they've been well known for a long time. There is a fund that I really enjoy um, talking to the folks there and reading their materials, and they're called Appleseed Fund. They're actually a sort of a deep value type of a, of a socially responsible fund, which is interesting. Which, you know, that can be a little harder because sometimes the most beaten down stocks, there's, a, there's kind of a reputational reason. But, you know, they do find good stocks that way. And um, one of the things that I thought was most interesting about them over years time was um, during the financial crisis era, they actually excluded too big to fail banks. And I felt like that was a really interesting new outlook on what social responsibility is. What did the too big to fail banks do? They privatized profits and they socialized losses. That's not good for yeah. our marketplace. Yeah. And I, I was like, whoa, that's a really cool new dimension of that conversation of what social responsibility is. Mm -hmm. One thing I would like to tell people is um, if they're going to look into different fund options, US CIF is a great organization. It is the Association of um, Sustainable SRI Funds. So they do have a page on their website that gives a whole slew of different funds and their returns. So you can go and look and look up the, oh. you know, look up the record and see how they've done. Cool. And then, in addition to reading your articles on Fool.com, where else should people go to to learn more about 
getting better at socially responsible investing and evaluating ESGness? Well, um, one thing, again, that over the years I've noticed has changed a lot is that there's a lot more mainstream media. So, you know, oh. you can run across, you know, Wall Street Journal articles or, you know, New York Times or Barron's about, you know, ESG and SRI topics. One of my favorite magazines that I like to look at is um, Fast Company. They cover a lot of interesting company endeavors from the sort of social innovation type of level. There are organizations that I think are great for people to look at their reports, such as Ceres, that's C-E-R-E-S, and As You Sow, um, they both look at a lot of sustainability issues at companies. A lot of um, the big financial firms are getting into this area. You know, like you can find white papers on the on the internet from people like Morgan Stanley and BlackRock and Merrill Lynch. So you can do searches like that. Of course, as we discussed, like in corporate governance, I love following Nell Minow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and social media is great. I mean, you know, you look at Twitter and you can look at hashtags for ESG, SRI, sustainability. CorpGov is another one and try to find information that way. And of course, those corporate sustainability reports are, believe me, they're good, good reading. Ellis, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. This has been a thank fantastic you. conversation. I learned fun. a lot. I, I did too. Did you really? <laughs> yes. I don't know how. <laughs> you're the one who said all the good stuff. And bro and I just kind of like sat slack jawed and made jokes. <laughs> but you're welcome, Alice. <laughs> Come back again and praise me for doing very little. All right, let's close with a disclaimer, shall we? The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about today. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you hear on this show. Okay, that's it. The show is edited responsibly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp and Alice Lomax, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.